So we have some very familiar words in our gospel reading this morning, and I think they're a good example of the fact that some words become so common that they become cliche, and that in becoming cliche, they really are emptied of their meaning. And so anybody in the room, at least my age, maybe a little bit younger, remembers Rainbow Man? Remember the guy with the rainbow wig who would be at, you know, every big golf tournament, you know, holding up a sign that said what? John 3.16, right? And he'd be at the NCAA, you know, finals and at the World Series and the Super Bowl. And, and the cameras would always find him, right? And maybe several times during the game, you know, because he'd always position himself. Remember that? Like if a field goal was being kicked in the Super Bowl, he'd position himself somehow, you know, behind the goalpost. Imagine trying to pull that off today, you know, with security and everything. But what happens then is like a symbol or an icon or something gets into our head. And because we've seen that sign so many times, we, we kind of think we know what John 3.16 means. Or to take another example, just three lowercase letters, G-O-D. And what happens is we immediately intuitively think we know what that means. And so we pour our meaning into that word. And that's kept a whole army of therapists working, right? What, what, is com what commonly happens, especially in Christian therapy, is we're trying to help people get at their God concept. What's the meaning you're pouring into those three little words? Sorry, those three, you know, three little letters that form that word. It, it's a, actually a difficult thing and takes patience and a certain amount of passion to say, no, those letters have meaning outside of my internal reference to them. That there is a Trinitarian God, which means there is a way that things are outside of my thinking about them or my feeling about them. And so I have to give myself, and this is, a, this is an aspect of Christian formation, not the only aspect, but an, an aspect, is the discovery of God on his terms rather than the terms that we kind of intuitively put on those three little letters or a sign like John 3.16. So actually both our readings this morning obviously have really important ideas for us to, concern, or to consider concerning our own discipleship. So firstly, as Alan just read to us in the gospel, Moses was told to lift up a serpent in the wilderness. And so then you have a so, meaning, and in the same manner must the Son of Man be lifted up. And you have that little word that, that just says, and this is the purpose, he would be lifted up, we might say so that, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now there again, you have two words that everybody would intuitively think they know what those two words mean, eternal life. But you'll see, I think, as we walk through these passages this morning, that there's perhaps a lot more going on there than we intuitively think. And so when we come to our, our reading in Numbers 21, as Beth said, as she was helping us get settled, that uh, this is the last of, of a handful, I forget, five or six stories in Numbers where the people are shown to be grumbling. And again, if you're my age and had any connection with... Uh, the Jesus movement, I just, when I hear that word grumbling, I think of the King James Version, and I can just hear Chuck Smith, you know, in his rich voice talking about them grumbling. You know, they were grumbling. And it just kind of sticks in my mind, you know, that these, these stories of, of Israel grumbling. 
And of course, you know, the ups and downs of the wandering in the wilderness. Sometimes Israel had great victories and they were moving towards the promised land. Have you ever seen a map of the wanderings? You know, sometimes they're moving towards the promised land. Other times they're wandering away and sinning. And here they're wandering again after they just had a huge victory. But because Moses doesn't want to deal with Edom, now they're walking around Edom and they're getting further and further away from the promised land and further away, therefore, from the hope of any real food. I mean, that's sort of the presenting issue here. It's not the only issue, but it's kind of the presenting issue. And it's beginning to make the journey feel like just a constant irritation. And that irritation is making it harder and harder to trust God. And so I actually don't blame them when they think Egypt would have been better than dying this way. You know, that's almost taken on sort of religious lore for us, you know, turning back to Egypt, you know, has become like a symbol for something. But before it was a symbol for something, it was a real feeling. It was a genuine feeling that this is worse than what we're experiencing in Egypt. And this was supposed to be freedom. How's this working? Moses doesn't feel like freedom to me. And this, I think, is the reason we read these texts in Lent. It's a reminder of our journey of sin and repentance and that the suffering of the cross and the life-giving resurrection, our healing, our salvation, our light, always comes on the heels of brokenness and sin and darkness. And these things work together as they work in our passages. So in Numbers, our passage there, the people see their error, they ask for forgiveness, and that asking for forgiveness, which we'll do in a few moments here, is the seedbed for renewal, for a change of life, for a future hope. When they finally get it, and they ask Moses to intercede to God on their behalf, that is the beginning seed for their future hope. So now if we get back to our gospel passage, if you want to look at it in your order of service, please. We'll spend a little time here on this gospel passage. So what John is saying is something like this, that when Jesus died on the cross, that was the full and perfect display of God's character, of his intention towards humanity and his love. So that what John wants us to see is that on the cross, we see the result of evil, the evil in which we're all stuck. That what that led to, the kind of wanderings in our own life that are often rooted in wonderings, unclearness about Christian leadership, unclearness about the church. You know, the nuns and the duns today, they're not far different than the people who are done with Moses. They're sort of done with this whole God thing. Like whatever this might mean, I think I'm done with it. This doesn't make any sense. We're, working, we're walking farther away from the promised land. There's no hope of any kind of normal food or the, and, and just think of all that surrounds food, the socialness of it, the, the familiarity of tastes and smells that help people feel grounded in their life and that's all being taken away. But what John wants us to see is that what God does about this is in the form of a cross and that the lifting up of Jesus on the cross, right? Even in the same way that Moses lifted up this bronze servant, the lifting up of Jesus on the cross and in ascension is an invitation to place our complete confidence in Jesus as the way to receive the cure for sin and the real, full, now-oriented and lasting life that God intended for humanity. So then when you read this phrase that is so cliche, if you look at your text, for God so loved the world, again, we tend to think, especially Protestants, especially evangelicals, uh, we tend to think of, you know, sort of mere cross and then some sort of abstraction of the cross that we would think of as a theory of the atonement and then maybe sort of a mechanized point in time utilitarian 
way that we you know, get converted and our sins get forgiven and we get to go to heaven when we die. That's sort of the meaning that's been poured into that. And not wrongly, it's just that not merely. That when it says, for God so loved the world, that includes creation. And that includes not forever having nothing to do with Adam and Eve, banished. But that banishment was for their own good so that redemption could come. So creation is an act of God's love. Redemption is an act of God's love. Safeguarding his people through the wilderness and their wanderings is an act of God's love. Final fulfillment in the eschaton, that's an act of God's love. God loved slaves in Egypt and delivered them, rescued them. The guidance of the law was an act of love. The security in the covenant was an act of love. The safety and provision of the promised land was an act of love. The prophets to guide the people of God back when they strayed from his purposes was an act of love. That's all an act of love. But when you get to the next phrase, that he gave his only son, this is, of course, unspeakably important in that it's the full and final demonstration of God's love. So that now we live in the beginning of the end, that everything that's happened for the last 2,000 years and will happen until the final moment comes is now, by definition, in Christ. And everything has its meaning with reference to Christ and especially the demonstration of God's love on the cross. And this is where notions of like judgment and justice come in. And I've told you before, not, not just judgment and justice is sort of a slap on the hand for you, bad dog, or for bad humanity, but justice and judgment as the insistence of God towards his purposes and that his purposes will be fulfilled. And that people who are intent in living malaligned to divine intention will experience that justice in one way. Those whose hearts are inclined towards God and towards his purposes and are seeking to live in alignment to the will of God, then they will experience that insistence that gets manifested as justice or judgment in, of course, a very different way. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that, and so here you have another logical connective, that whoever believes in him. And this, I think, um, again, we read this in Lent, I think, to remind us that evil is not healed and transformed kind of automatically or against your will. Did you catch that? The sinful patterns that we all have, have in us are not going to be healed against our will. Your will matters. Like the present structure of your desires, that they matter. Now there's exceptions to every rule. You have your occasional Abraham, you have your occasional Saul of Tarsus that gets knocked to the ground sort of against his will. But in the vast majority of time, God seems to cooperate with the present set of our will and to invite us to something different. And the biblical word for that is to believe. So the fact that kind of our darkness has deep roots in us, it means that we then have to be involved in the process. Now, obviously we're not talking about works. We're not talking about stuff that would earn God's love or be meritorious. We're talking about simple, loving cooperation. I always picture this, uh, you know, when I was younger out front mowing the lawn and, you know, with a real lawnmower, and there would be Jonathan with his little Tyco plastic one, you know, kind of just wanting to be doing what dad's doing. So like take this out of the context of religiosity, take it out of the context of earning and put it in a relational context. This is my father in heaven. 
And I believe that his fundamental, ref, his fundamental interaction to the earth is, is love. God so loved the world. And I want to be with him doing what he's doing. And so me being with him, sort of tracing his steps with my little plastic life, is, is not something that diminishes his goodness or his sovereignty or his power. It demonstrates it. It demonstrates that he is so good that I want to be with him doing what he's doing. I am his cooperative friend. I'm seeking to live a life of constant creative goodness for the sake of others through the power of the Holy Spirit because that's what I perceive God to be doing. It's what he was doing from Abraham to John the Baptist to Jesus to the church to us. This is what he's up to and, and I believe it's good and so I want to be with him in it. That's the picture here. Nothing religious. So, this, so whatever believing means, it doesn't mean like trying harder. It means something like a childlike training. Again, I always just want to leave you with the image of whatever the disciplines mean, um, whatever followership of Jesus means, it fundamentally works best when it has a childlikeness attached to it. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I occasionally take myself a little too serious. I don't know, maybe none of the rest of you do. And take this process maybe a little too serious and lose the fact that God loves it, that we just care and are trying. I mean, I've, I've told you before, like when the kids would take out the trash without me asking them, I was like ready to die and go to heaven. <laughs> like, okay, life is good, I'm done. Like, oh my God, my kids care about something I care about and like did it without asking, like that's amazing. Now too much to ask that a room would be cleaned up without, you know, but you know, I, I, I knew my boundaries, but like, are you feeling me here? Or think of how you all feel when uh, you have a grandchild or your niece or nephew has a baby and, and you know, the baby's like trying to roll over, you know, for the first time. Oh, look, 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 look. she's almost rolling over, right? Or look, 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 they're about to take their first step. None of you sit there going, what an idiot little baby. <laughs> right, there's like a blessing in seeing someone trying. So if you can attach to that a childlikeness, the kingdom of God is unto little children who aren't suspicious, who aren't ruled by cynicism, who don't know yet how to manage their face to fake it. They just really keep it real and they say the craziest things, right? Kids say the craziest things. Now I want you to picture your father in heaven going, yeah, yeah, I know. But they like totally love me and they really wanna be with me and they're really trying to do it right. Isn't it great? Yeah, except for those of us who battle with perfectionism. So then we assign to ourselves dopiness because we can't quite roll over yet. Can't quite pull ourselves up to the coffee table yet. Can't quite take that step. And this is why, again, I just always say, if I had a magic wand and could just wish one thing, it would be a joyful childlikeness that gets attached to the process of our discipleship to Christ. And that that would just sort of naturally banish worry and anxiety and fear and hopelessness and religiosity and attaching any sort of works or meritoriousness to it and just put it in a, real, a wholly different relational context. So it's not trying harder. That's not what believing means. Of course, it's not earning. It just means something like this. Like if, you, if, if you're walking this way and you hear Jesus call you and say, come follow me, what are the affairs of your life you might have to rearrange to align yourself with where Jesus is calling you to go? It's sort of like, well, if you're going to the beach and Jesus says, no, let's go to the mountains. Okay, 
What do you have to do to rearrange the affairs of your life to head with him in the direction he's going? Again, that has nothing to do with earning. That has nothing to do with meriting God's love or grace or mercy or forgiveness. It's, it's just what happens whenever you have any sort of relationship. You, you just do the things that help you align with that. So for John, then this I think will make easy sense. The opposite of belief is not unbelief. Did you catch that? I mean, if you read this all through John, the opposite for John of belief is not unbelief. The opposite of belief for John is disobedience. It's continuing to live maligned with where Jesus is saying, come follow me. Because John knows that the intention to keep going a different direction is rooted in the fact that you don't have confidence in this person in this direction. In, the sense, in that sense, you don't believe. Therefore, for John, to believe is to obey and to live as apprentices of Jesus and to try to live into the purposes of God. So John tells us, Jesus said, if anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, did you hear that? Hearing my words but doesn't keep them? So Jesus says, I, you know, I continue to work with them. Or John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So then whoever believes in him, you look at the next phrase, should not perish but have eternal life. And here now I want to say more about, I think, the misunderstandings that revolve around those two words, eternal life. So the first thing to say is eternal life in the scriptures is a kind of life. Eternal life is not spatial. It's not somewhere out there in space and time. Um, it's not mere existence. It doesn't mean simply duration. But it, it's something like, if you had to choose a word, it's something like salvation. Or if you wanted to choose an Old Testament word, something like shalom. So the wholeness that's involved in a, like a Greek, the, Greek, the common Greek term for salvation, sozo, is a very holistic term. And, and this is what an eternal kind of life is. So it's real life versus a false life. It's a wholeness rather than a fracturedness. It means to be put right. That's the essence of the word dikaiosune for righteousness. It's to, it's to be put back right. And so it's, it's, it's a lasting life for sure, but it's mostly a quality of life in contrast with the futility that causes spiritual disease and a perishing sort of life. So eternal life and perishing life are held in context or in contrast in this verse. So a perishing sort of life is one that languishes in confusion and purposelessness. And this alienated, I've been just thinking recently, alienated from one Psalm 139 life. I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. And I've had like plans for you and a trajectory and, and there's a purpose for who you are. There's a purpose for the context and family you came out of. There's, there, there, like, there is a particularity to you that, that is really important. And that when we don't live into that following Jesus, then confusion and purposelessness and a sense of alienation, a sense of futility comes as we try to you know, fashion a good or coherent life for ourselves. We find ourselves not being able to do it and the futility that goes along with that. And so the idea of a perishing life is, is a life that's kind of marked by loss that makes someone's existence feel empty and worthless and meaningless. So now John kind of holds these, as he often does, holds these contrasts before us. And he says, look at the next phrase. And so this now is the judgment that light has come into the world. And so think of Jesus as a light who said, come follow me. But people love the darkness and they continue to walk in different directions rather than towards the light. Now, you know, Paul's famous summary for this in Romans 3. I like the way the Living Bible gets this. No one is good. No one in all the world is innocent. No one has ever really followed God's path or even truly wanted to. 
Everyone is turned away. All have gone wrong. No one anywhere has kept on doing what is right. Not one. They care nothing about God nor what he thinks of them. And what's difficult is whether you're in the numbers, people of God, Israel, or you've been listening to Jesus, or 2,000 years later, you're listening to Jesus in the book of John, is to realize, this is very tricky, is to realize that describes me. And we're back to Lent. That the starting point of spiritual transformation is always a recognition of the part of me that's malaligned with God. And this requires that we break the power of denial and the pattern of rationalization. Now, I'm aware that this can be scary. I'm aware that it can go wrong. I'm aware that it can feel harsh. And that's why I say, get yourself back to childlikeness. If it begins to feel harsh, never confuse it for a lack of God's love. And here's why. Sin doesn't make us worthless. It only makes us lost. Like moving in the wrong direction, wandering in the wilderness. That never made the people of God worthless. No, it was precisely their worth in the plan of God that he stuck with them and they did get to the promised land. So sin doesn't make it worthless. It only makes us lost. And Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. Like, yeah, I'm going this way and I see that people are going this way, but, but I'm the kind of shepherd who would leave the hundred and go find the one. I've come to seek and save those who are living malaligned to the intention of God for humanity. That's precisely why I'm here, because the lost has value. This is what Luke 15 is all about. Can you just think about that quickly? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. That's what all this is about, is the intention to God towards broken humanity, who, who begin to see the part of them that's malaligned, and then is, is willing to just sort of get into this and understand that the issues of discipleship are never about just guilt or versus innocence. But as John's talking about here, it's more about what's our heart attitude towards the light that has come. Like, does the light that has come help us understand our lostness and sort of, you know, shine a light on it so that we can see where we are and then be drawn to the light, to be drawn towards following Jesus? Or does the light make us want to shrink back from it because it exposes our sin, which we love, and maybe don't really want to get rid of? A few months ago, a group of us read uh, Jamie Smith's book, You Are What You Love. The essential thesis of this book is, you are what you love, and you may not love what you think you do. And it was just right back to Lent. Like, I really want to stop thinking really bad things about my boss. So we think, but they keep coming. And we might find that, no, actually what I really want is to live in condemnation towards her or him. Because somehow that, that somehow condemning um, him or her makes me feel powerful or it makes me feel better about myself or whatever. And you realize, oh, that's what I really love. Like, I think I love the absence of condemnation, but no, I think what I actually love is the powerful place from which I can condemn someone. Well, now you've got real, real work to do. You've got real followership of Jesus' work to do. When you realize there is actually a part of me that is malaligned, and I actually like it. That is surprisingly what I actually love. And so now how can I just work with that with Jesus in this very childlike way? So the whole point for John the Baptist, or sorry, John the Evangelist in this, in this passage we have this morning is just something like this. I think you don't have to live in a trapped, condemned life. That thinking of the numbers passage, the various poisonous, fiery snakes, that's the Hebrew term, these fiery snakes of our lives don't have to kill us. 
That as we do our Lenten work, we do it always with God's work and the cross of Jesus behind it as the basic context. And as the cross of Jesus lifts him up for all time, we know that anyone who has this sort of malaligned thing going on can just shift their gaze, look up, believe, and then have a different sort of life. So we talked about, you know, kind of taking a phrase like eternal life and pouring instinctive but maybe wrong meaning into it. Like, like seeing eternal life as somewhere out there beyond the stars or somewhere out there in time or something. There actually is a very straightforward definition of eternal life in the New Testament. It's John 17, 3. This is the beginning of, you know, Jesus's prayer when he says, and this is eternal life. Very rare you get a straightforward definition from Jesus about anything. But now you get a straightforward definition. Now, this is eternal life, that they would know you that they would have a richly interactive conversational relationship with you, my Father, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when you think of having an eternal kind of life, you must, I think, think in relational terms. To think of a life soaked in the presence of the Trinitarian God fits very nicely with the Great Commission. As you go, teach the people you find to practice the kind of things that I've taught you to practice. And as you do that, immerse them, baptize them. Immerse them in the triune reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This fits very nicely to see that this is the heart of God, that what we're trying to do in our own formation is to immerse our life in the Trinitarian life so that our life it gets sort of, it takes on the dye, you might say, of this Trinitarian life and, and what the Trinity has been up to pre-creation, what the Trinity will be up to uh, in, in the new heavens and the new earth. We're trying to steep ourselves in that story. We're trying to put ourselves in it. We're trying to like put ourselves in a bowl of dye and like a garment, we're trying to suck that up so that his life and his purposes become ours. And so in a sense, this is an invitation to die to self to lay down our life, to put off the old person. And what I want you to hear this morning is that that's the greatest invitation you will ever hear. The invitation for you to lay down this malaligned life, crucify that, to put it to death, or in Paul's words, to put off the old and to put on the new is the greatest invitation we'll ever hear. I'll say this quickly because some of you have heard me say it before. For instance, a plant has a certain kind of life, right? So picture our Bible in the stand this morning as let's say a potted palm tree. It has a certain kind of life. It's alive with reference to the relative temperature in the room. It's alive with reference to the relative humidity in the room. It has a kind of life. It's alive. Now let's say there was a cat, a little playful kitty cat up here on the podium. And I took a little red ball or chapstick or something and threw it on the ground. What's the cat do? Jumps down and chases a little ball, right? What's the plant do with reference to the ball? Nothing, why? Because it's dead to the realm of play. It has a life, but it doesn't have that kind of life. Now, what if over here is a, a couch with a, a, a mom or a dad doing flashcards with a, you know, elementary school age kid and holds up a card that says four times four and a little kid says 16. Well, what does the cat do? Does the cat stop and go, oh, I'll be darned. <laughs> four times four is 16. No, why? Because though the cat is alive to the realm of play, it's dead to the realm of mathematics. It doesn't have that kind of life. So look me in the eye. When Jesus says to you, I'm going this way, and your life is malaligned, and I'm asking you to put that to death, it's not religious, it's not works, it's not mean-spirited. It's this, you're living a mere plant kind of life, or you're living a cat kind of life, and I'm inviting you to put that to death and to become humanity as God intended. 
to be free from these sub kind of life, that because it's the only kind of life we've ever known, we hang on to it. And he's saying, I'm inviting you to let go of that. Let go of the wandering attached to it. Let go of the unbelief attached to it and place your confidence in me. Take a risk, venture on the fact that if you let go of what's been known to you, you will pick up something that's not only superior, but you will be human as God intended. You'll be living into what he intended before he made humankind out of the dust of the earth. You'll be living in alignment with the story of what we will be forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the invitation of these passages. Look up, find a different point of reference and you'll find a whole different kind of life. Well, as we come to a, another bit of Lenten silence, you know, we always want Lent to help us kind of understand, at least seek to understand underlying issues. So this morning I want to invite you to just sit for a moment with this thought. If believing really does mean obedience, if believing really does mean obedience, in what ways am I struggling to believe? If believing really does mean obedience, in what ways am I struggling to believe?